Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Please welcome Roger Severino, the Heritage Foundation's Vice President of Domestic Policy and the Joseph C. and Elizabeth A. Anderlich Fellow. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I can think of few topics as important as the future of education policy in America. It's about accountability, choice, and transparency for the kids. I'm a parent, I have six children, and the way I approach it is if I were to send my kids to the public schools in Fairfax County, I would be endangering their eternal souls. I am not exaggerating. That is actually how I think about that question. <clears throat> and I wish we had additional options. We have very few between homeschooling and a very good private Christian school. Um, but very few, and I'm lucky enough to be able to afford to pay to not send my kids and expose them to the public school system, but not everybody is. Our panel is gonna talk about the dangers as to why we are endangering our children's well-being and flourishing. And the first person I'm gonna introduce is my dear friend, Emily Gao. She was at the Heritage Foundation as the director of the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, is currently at the Alliance Defending Freedom, and is a graduate of Harvard Law School. Please welcome Emily Gao. Thank you, Roger. Uh, it's a delight to be back. And uh, colleagues, and I'm delighted to welcome our first two panelists. Matt Sharp, Senior Counsel and State Government Relations National Director at Alliance Defending Freedom, and Joseph Combe, the Director of Public Policy at the Family Policy Alliance. Please join me. So the Promise to America's Parents is a movement of public policy organizations parents, and we hope lawmakers, to protect parental rights. Now, over 30 organizations from public policy organizations and think tanks like the Family Policy Alliance and the Heritage Foundation, as well as many grassroots groups like Parents Defending Education, No Left Turn in Education, Moms for America and Moms for Liberty and FreedomWorks have joined the Promise Coalition to protect parental rights. And the reason is because we all know that parents love and know their children the best. But currently, there is an expansion of the administrative state, and that is leading to toxic ideologies in both education and healthcare that are causing harms to children. They are telling children that their identity is based on their race or sex or sexual orientation or gender identity. These are very divisive ideologies, and they're also confusing ideologies, telling children that they may be trapped in the wrong body. And so that's why these groups came together to create this roadmap to good policy and good legislation to protect parental rights so that parents can be in charge of their children's education, healthcare, and upbringing. So I want to start off with um, my colleague Matt Sharp to talk about government accountability. 
What does government accountability look like? How can it be increased? Well, thank you, Emily, and uh, thanks everyone for being here. So when we talk about accountability when it comes to parental rights, I think it's helpful to first off place parental rights where it belongs in, in sort of the, the scope of other fundamental freedoms. Uh, we talk about free speech, we talk about religious liberty, and I think we need to more and more place parental rights where it properly belongs in that sort of hierarchy of these fundamental freedoms. And so when we think about, for example, free speech, ADF for years, we've been litigating free speech cases on college campuses and other places. And accountability there means when the government does something that violates our right to free speech, when it censors a college student from being able to share their faith or, or talk about a, a pro-life issue on campus, Accountability means that there are legal remedies available, the ability to go in and hold those government officials accountable. And when we talk about accountability and parental rights, that's exactly what we're talking about. So, for example, in, in some of the cases ADF's been involved in, when you have a school district, um, like some of those in, in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, that adopt policies that tell staff, if you've got a child that uh, wants to identify as the opposite sex, you should affirm that child, you should change their name, you should change their pronoun, and you should withhold all of that information from parents. Well, what's the remedy for parents when they find out that the schools are actively undermining their rights to make these important decisions about their kids? What's the remedy when these government officials are hiding, actively hiding information from parents? Well, this is where this accountability comes in, to make sure that parents have the opportunity to, to go in and get a legal remedy, to get a court order or something telling these school officials, no, you cannot leave parents out of the loop. You cannot withhold this information. We're actually going to side with the parents, give the parents the ability to do this. So accountability really looks like elevating and treating parental rights as we do with other rights. That when the government infringes those, when it violates those rights, the parents have the ability to go in and get legal relief. And I think one other aspect of this that we're seeing in some of the legislation that's working its way through the states and other places is giving parents more control as well. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit, but when we talk about what does parental rights look like in the law, it means clearly delineating that parental rights is in that top tier of rights, it's a fundamental right, of making sure that we elaborate on what those rights are. So parents, you have the right to direct the education of your children. And we're going to talk more about this in detail, but being able to decide, like Roger mentioned, of do I want public school, do I want private school, do I want homeschool, do I want some hybrid approach, but putting parents in the driver's seat. That's what accountability means, that it's parents telling the government, this is my decision, not yours. You need to let me as the parent working with my family decide what's best for my kids. I think it also matters in healthcare and, and in some of these other topics of putting parents in the driver's seat of making what's best for their child's mental, physical, emotional health and letting parents be the ones that are the final deciders on all of that. And I think it also plays out in, in other areas of, of religious and moral training. Um, and we're going to talk about with um, critical race theory and critical gender theory and some of those things, but that it's parents deciding when it's appropriate to talk about those topics and how they want to address them and how they want to incorporate their faith in many of these things. So I look at that and, and it kind of gives a framework for what accountability looks like. It's, it's a clear standard of what those parental rights are, of describing what they are, and then giving parents a legal remedy, giving them a true ability to hold the government accountable when those rights are violated. Thanks, Matt. That's a really helpful explanation. Can you talk a little bit about why Congress could get involved? And why, why is there a need for any clarification of the status of parental rights? 
Well, unfortunately, there's been a, a little bit of confusion about parental rights, and, and some of it's flowed from the Supreme Court. When you look back over the history of parental rights cases, um, there were several where the Supreme Court clearly said parental rights are fundamental. They're well-established in our nation's history and, and upholding those rights. And then, unfortunately, we had this case come up uh, a few years ago called Troxel versus Granville um, that well, it was a case dealing with like some visitation issues and some things like that, but where the court unfortunately muddied the waters a bit. Still said parental rights are fundamental, but then left open the question, do we treat it the same as free speech and, and these other fundamental rights, or is it subject to this intermediate scrutiny, this lesser level of protection from the courts? And so as a result, there has been some confusion. Um, in lower courts and other places, you've got some states like Wisconsin, for example, that have really strong precedent properly treating parental rights as fundamental. And then you have other courts that diminish the right, unfortunately. So a proper role for Congress is to step in and restore a proper understanding and a proper place of parental rights in that hierarchy and saying parental rights is not a second tier right. No, it is up at the top. And especially as we're seeing more and more federal government policies come out that are undermining parental rights. We're seeing it in places like executive orders that Biden, uh, President Biden is issuing that undermine parental rights over mental and physical health care. We're seeing it in things like the Section 1557, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking that was issued this week, that again has things in there that undermine the right of parents to be the decision makers for their kids. So I think there is a role for Congress to step in and say we want to make sure that when it comes to federal policy that number one, we are respecting parental rights as that top tier fundamental right. And number two, that we are putting some accountability measures in place. That when the federal government tramples that right, when it crosses the line and starts interfering with parents' decision making for what's best for their kids, that there is that accountability, that legal remedy available to them. Excellent. Thank you. Now I want to turn to the states and to Joseph Combe with the Family Policy Alliance. Can you talk with us about what state lawmakers and parents are doing to protect parental rights? Absolutely. Thank you, Emily, by the way, for this opportunity. Thanks to Heritage and ADF, and thanks to everyone who's here, whether it's online or in person. Um, regarding the states, this is a great question. States can do a lot. There are currently 15 states with parental rights bills on law. What that means is that there are 35 that do not have parental rights bills in, in good law. We at FPA are a national organization that hosts a network across the states of what we call family policy councils, um, or FPCs. And there's uh, over 30 of them. And these FPCs work, they're nonprofits, and they work within their, group, their states and their legislators to help effectuate good policy like this. They can work with uh, legislators that we are allied with or graduates of our Statesman Academy, which we just had our latest class last week. These are new legislators to learn how to live out their faith as a Christian while being um, a legislator and trying to get good policy like this passed. Um, so they work together to accomplish this and to uh, lead the charge, if you will. Um, as I mentioned, 15 states have a parental bill of rights already. Um, it, and I know we're going to talk about the great victory in Arizona with this earlier this year. I do just want to mention at the outset that Arizona was actually one of those 15 that had a parental rights bill before this year. Um, and it, it was very strong. It was very good. Um, it had some weaknesses. And like Matt said, um, you know, giving parents a remedy is so important in this fight, a way to enforce their rights. That was one of the things that the initial, uh, that the initial bill in Arizona lacked and part of what was go uh, going into amending it this past year. Um, so just because your state has a parental rights uh, bill of, uh, parental bill of rights on record doesn't mean it's they're not all created equal. I'll say that. So they're always worth just revisiting, looking at to make sure they're really as strong as they ought to be. 
Thanks, Joseph. Uh, tell us more about how parents and lawmakers in Arizona were able to work together to strengthen the protections of parental rights. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm honored to, to be here in, in, in an, an additional sense in that I'm representing one of my great colleagues, Kathy Harrod, who works with uh, the Center for Arizona Policy, our Arizona FPC, and she and her organization are just great people who led the charge for this um, amendment to their Bill of Rights last year. And she did some really key things to effectuate this. Um, the most important thing she told me that, that they did was they organized a lot of the testimony that supported this bill. And it was all testimony, or mostly testimony, from parents talking about how their rights had been violated, telling different stories about this. Um, for instance, one of the major provisions of the bill um, was that um, it clarified that parents have complete access to their children's medical and educational records. Um, this was being denied to parents in Arizona, as it's being denied to, to parents in other states. And I'll give you an example. One, one mother testified that she tried to get her child's medical records from their hospital um, after he turned 12 years old, and the hospital denied them to her. And the hospital told her that they, had, they were instructed to expressly shut out the parents after the child turns 12 years old. Um, a story like that and the st other stories that were told were so critical towards getting this bill passed. They told the best stories, or at least the most powerful stories, um, to show that this was a real issue that real parents were suffering from. So parental testimony and, and testimony was the biggest thing. This is something that all the FPCs can help organize and facilitate um, to get these bills you know, passed and be influential the way they should be. Um, another, another thing that they, that they brought about was um, stories of how their rights were being either not just violated but maybe subverted. One of, the main, um, one of the main principles or one of the main provisions of the Arizona law was that um, public schools could not survey students without getting written permission from parents and showing them the survey language. And one of the parents there testified um, in regards to this provision that their school had surveyed their, their, their child and had asked them such personal questions as, do you believe in God and how do your parents get along? Um, so this was a critical provision. These were the three main provisions. And then lastly, it was about their, all their testimony showed that they had no method of recourse um, for these violations. And that was the biggest and most key provision of the amendment, was to give parents a right to sue the government um, to receive declaratory relief, injunctive relief, compensatory damages, attorney's fees, almost everything. And it puts the burden of, the pr of proof on the government to show that they have a compelling state interest, that they use the, lift, the least restricted means, et cetera. It's a very well-written piece of legislation um, that makes things eminently clear for courts in the event of litigation. So that, that ability to give parents the right to enforce their rights um, was critical, was the most key provision. I think that's the, that's the most essential element moving forward for you know, states who want to shore this up. And can I piggyback off something that Joseph said? One of the reasons Arizona needed to do that, there is a federal law called the Protection of Pupil Rights Amendment that deals with these exact surveys that Joseph was talking about, that when a federally funded education program, so a public school, uses federal dollars to ask these very invasive questions of kids about their religious beliefs, about their family life, and things like that, that it's supposed to get parental consent and let parents review all of this before they do it. But these surveys are going out everywhere, and parents have found out about them, and they say, well, this is violating federal law. And the response is, well, you can, there's a form somewhere on the government website that you can file a complaint, but nothing is done. There's no legal remedy under federal law for parents to do this. And so that's where Arizona and these other states have had to step up to fill the gap left in federal law. Now there is in Arizona. Parents are going to take advantage of that, and there really should be in all 50 states.
Terrific. Well, there have been many stories of parents' rights being violated. Some of them have been featured here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, my colleague Jay Richards had an event here in March where he featured parents whose children had been secretly transitioned to a different gender identity in schools. So these stories abound, and it's so encouraging to hear that parents and lawmakers are working together in the states to enact stronger protections of parental rights. So now I want to open the time up to um, some question and answer for Joseph and for Matt before we turn to our next panel. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and somebody will bring a microphone to you. Could you say more about the in loco parentis concept and what the limits of it are? That seems to be the, the key idea that once the child is under the control of the school, the school acts like the parents. So if the parent says, I don't want the school to do those medical or other invasive things, well, the school is in charge or is it not in charge? Yeah, so that, that concept of in loco parentis, I think courts in particular have taken it to the extreme. So there was some cases, uh, I think there's a case out of the Ninth Circuit, uh, Fields versus Palmdale School District, um, where some of the parents were objecting to some of the very um, sexual content that was being discussed in the schools. And the parents were saying, we object to this, we don't like this, we think this is just inappropriate for our kids. And the courts took that in loco parentis to the extreme. They said, yes, you have parental rights when it comes to education, but really it is the, you get to decide which of these three doors your kids want to walk through. They can go to the home school, they can go to the private school, or they can go to the public school. But the moment you drop your kid off and they walk through the, the door of the public school, your rights as a parent end. You are entirely out of the picture from that point forward, and the school is now the parents. So they decide when your child is subjected to some of these very harmful ideologies, the critical gender theory, the critical race theory, uh, very sexualized education. They decide when it's best for them. And then we see this play out when it comes to some of the stuff with the social transitioning that I mentioned. Um, like I said, ADF has several cases where these school officials are saying, we know it's best for your child. And so you, parent, have no role when it comes to whether your child should socially transition. We, we've got one case out of Wisconsin that's really heartbreaking, where a, a young woman was um, wanting to identify as a male. Um, the school was affirming this, saying, yes, we'll use a male pronoun, we'll use a male name. And the parents tried to step in and say, no, we don't want our daughter to go through this. We think this is harmful. We actually are working with a counselor. We're going to do better help. And the school said, too bad. Once she's here, she's ours and not yours, essentially. And that is the extreme to which we're seeing this taken. And that's, you know, the parents rightfully took their daughter out of that environment um, and ended up a very beautiful story of their, their daughter getting good help and embracing her biological sex. But all of this happened because these schools were taking this extreme view that we're the parents, we know what's best for your child, you butt out of the picture. And I'll just add that that's one of the reasons that um, the medical access provision of these parental rights bills is so important because it goes such a long way towards preventing schools from hiding the transition of their child from the parents. Um, and you know, oftentimes this is express policy in the school's documents and guidelines is to lie to the parents about this specifically if they even suspect that the parents won't won't be quote unquote supportive of it. So the records provision gives the parents full access to the medical and educational records. And that's the key provision that helps prevent this from happening. Parents can see this and know school's not hiding anything from them. Terrific. We have another question here in the second row. 
Oh, perfect. So you discussed that there's no federal recourse as far as the protection of people rights amendment. And so do you think the proper way to move forward would be for states to do what Arizona did? Or do you think a federal approach would be better in this case? I think they're both helpful. I think if, um, from a state's perspective, you want to, the state lawmakers can't control federal law, but they can have an impact on state law. So if you can, you should. Uh, every state should do this because um, the federal government changes and can't be relied on for this. I do think there's, there's significantly a role for the federal government to play, as Matt discussed, but I think the answer is both and. They should both be pursuing this. If you're in a state that doesn't have this, and definitely doesn't have um, the, the enforcement mechanism provision, you need to have it. Parents rights are being violated as we've established. They need to have a way to make sure they can still effectuate them. Do you want to add anything else to that, Matt? No, yeah, I, I would just agree with Joseph. When you look at, there's other areas of federal law where we've had this both and, where we've had federal protections for free speech, for religious liberty, for other fundamental rights, and then states buttressing that and making sure that it uh, does that as well. And so especially as we're seeing, again, a, a more aggressive administrative state, as we're seeing the federal government playing a larger and larger role, unfortunately, in so many areas of our life, I think it is necessary to have that, that dual protection so that whether it's a state law regulation or policy, federal law regulation or policy, that parents know we have the ability to be the ultimate decision makers of what's best for our kids and have legal remedies when available. I might just add one additional thing. One of the um, talking points from people who opposed the bill in Arizona was that this was supposedly an attack on teachers. That's not true. Teachers aren't under any additional burden through these tests besides just not to say things they might have been saying. That's not a burden. That's an expectation. Um, and teachers won't be the recipient of any litigation that is successful for parents on this. So there's no way this is an attack on teachers. We saw the same line of argument for um, the Florida bill, the parental rights and education bill there. It's a bit different, but the theme is the same about asserting parental rights and how people can distort the narrative about it. This is not about teachers. Teachers do what they're supposed to do as what the taxpayers pay them to do. There's nothing that, the, that they have to worry about from these bills. Great. Well, thank you for leading off the panel with some great solutions that states and Congress can enact to protect parental rights. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emily. Now I want to invite our next panelist on stage, uh, Dr. Jay Richards. He is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow and Director of the DeVos Center for Life, Family, and Religion. And Lindsay Burke, who is the director of the Center for Education Policy and the Mark Colacatronis Fellow in Education. And we are going to talk about the principle of choice, which is also in the Promise to America's Parents. That is the second principle. And choice encompasses parents' choices in healthcare as well as education because of the problems that parents are facing in both areas. So, Jay, I'd love to start off with you talking about some of the challenges that parents are facing in the healthcare arena for children with gender distress. Absolutely, and this, this might not seem intuitive uh, that this actually does have something to do with education, and that's because of the particular interventions that um, unfortunately have been treated as the proper standard of care and are treated that way uh, in most of our public schools. So here, the, here's the standard treatment that you're going to get. Uh, even if you're in a state like Florida, which has parents' uh, uh, rights in education and various provisions, it's called the Dutch Protocol. And so what, we've all sort of heard references to this, but it starts with social transition, which 
which presumably t takes place in schools. That's where, say, a biological male, uh, a, a boy, is treated as if he's a female. The pronouns change, the names, names change, the, the bathrooms and the locker rooms change. That's social transition. Now, what does this have to do with, with parents' rights? Well, this is very unlikely to happen if the parents know about it, at least for, it, it, certainly if the parents disagree with it. But so this is, if you think about it, this is something that's happening in the schools, but this is actually a psychosocial intervention. And we know the kids that suffer from so-called gender dysphoria, so this distress that they might have with their sex body, um, that don't start this protocol, the vast majority of them actually grow out of it. So for many kids, puberty is actually the cure for this type of prepubescent gender dysphoria. On the other hand, if kids get put on this fast track, starting with social transitioning, uh, they're very unlikely uh, to become comfortable with their body. So you're literally starting kids on a pathway, the end of which is surgical intervention, which is sterilizing. So it's social transition followed, if they're young enough, by puberty blockers, followed by cross-sex hormones, followed ultimately by, by sterilizing surgery to try to transform their bodies to conform to their gender identity, their, their stated gender identity. That's kind of the single choice that many parents believe they have. They might try to take their child uh, to a therapist, but many therapists in many states in the country are actually afraid of losing their license. If they decide, let's, let's try to help the kid become comfortable with her body, right? So, so that's actually a bad thing. It could actually cost a, a, a therapist his or her license, uh, but putting the child on this so-called gender-affirming pathway uh, that's considered the right treatment for this problem. And so parents at the moment, uh, for the most part, don't have this type of choice unless they happen to be the kind of highly diligent parent that's going to do a lot of research and figure out that, uh, th that this type of treatment doesn't actually solve the problem. Thanks for that explanation. Now, we know that 20 states have actually put a ban on talk therapy that would help children become comfortable with their bodies. Can you talk about also what the federal government is doing in this arena? So the federal government, this is tricky because I could just say, well, what have they d done this week, actually, would be the way to answer this. So I could tell you, uh, but the federal government under President Biden, with the Democrats effectively in control of both the House and the Senate, on day one of President uh, Biden's presidency, he articulated a fundamental commitment to gender ideology. Very quickly, the White House published something called the National Strategy on Gender Equity and Equality, which is, you kind of guess, it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, and then they haven't been able to get the Equality Act passed in the Senate. So it's dead there. That's what they'd like to have. Short of that, though, they can make a whole lot of new rules and regulations. Matt Sharp in the previous panel actually mentioned uh, the incursion this week, which is a, a, a notice of a proposed rule to modify sexual Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. 1557, uh, for those of you that aren't really into the weeds, I hope most of you aren't down in the weeds like this, but this is actually the provision in the Affordable Care Act uh, that guarantees that people don't suffer sex discrimination in health care. Uh, so the trick is to redefine sex to include sexual orientation and in particular gender identity. It's of course not what the word means. In fact, gender ideology, uh, if anything, subverts the sexual binary. But that's the quick switch. And you can imagine what happens here when we're talking about the Affordable Care Act. We're talking about certainly uh, publicly funded medical care, but also ultimately private health care being compelled to, to essentially engage in these types of treatments. Now, 
it's the the rule hasn't been finalized yet so we can still submit comments but that's just this week i could bore you to tears for an hour describing the things this administration has done for the last year and a half to try to change rules uh, in pre-existing regulations and add new rules that uh, essentially set in concrete uh, gender ideology with respect to health care thanks jay and the heritage foundation also recently published a paper on the importance of parents' involvement in the treatment of children with gender dysphoria. Do you want to talk about the findings of that? Yeah, paper? It's, a, it's a really important paper by our colleague Jay Green. So that's green with an E at the end. And so you might wonder if you're new to this debate, okay, if you're a parent, why would you let your child start this kind of intervention? And that's precisely the response of, of about 90% or more of parents is that they're aghast, but they go to their school counselor, they go to the principal, they may go to their pediatrician or to their therapist, and they're told, do you want a live daughter or a dead son, or vice versa. In other words, from a parent's perspective, the idea that you don't know that you have a son or you don't know that you have a daughter, right, that your presumed daughter tells you, no, she's actually your son, right, that's a, that's a horrific thought. The only thing in some ways more horrific would be the idea that your child would commit suicide. And so that's the ultimate trump card to overcome parents' natural aversion to this kind of thing. And so this is overwhelmingly what parents are told. Uh, so what's the scientific basis for that? Well, Jay Green is a quant guy. He's really smart with this stuff. And so those of us that have been in this for a while knew that ah, there's basically three papers, two by the same author, one by an activist organization that makes this connection. The claim is effect it's essentially this on the other side, is that um, the only way to overcome or the primary way to overcome suicidal ideation, that is thoughts of suicide, is through this transition procedure. So that if you want to prevent your child from committing suicide, you want to get her on this pathway to transition. That's the claim. It's based on three papers that are, uh, the nicest thing that could be said is that they're not especially robust. We don't certainly have anything like a randomized control trial, but we're talking about very small numbers. And when you actually control for the relevant factors, the signal falls apart. And so what Jay Green did is he said, actually, there's a natural experiment here. Let's compare states uh, in which p kids can get access to the beginnings of these treatments, like puberty blockers and in particular cross-sex hormones, without parental consent, and compare those to states where kids uh, can, can, can't. So basically, in some, some states you can get them without parental consent. In other states, you have to have parental consent. And let's compare the rates of suicidal ideation in these states. So guess what he found? He found that the states where kids can get this type of treatment without their parental, without parental consent, uh, suicides and suicidal ideation is higher. So if anything, access to these treatments without your parents' agreement actually makes you more likely to think about suicide. That's exactly the opposite of what's been claimed. So not only is the scientific basis for this claim uh, very, very weak, but when we look at it very carefully, it turns out, if anything, the evidence points in the opposite direction. Thanks. And recently, the Biden administration also issued an executive order um, on something that they term conversion therapy, which is the basically the censorship of counseling. Um, what can we expect to see from the Biden administration um, since they have issued this executive order directing the Department of Health and Human Services to defund, essentially, any kind of this talk therapy for kids? Well, what we, I think, honestly, we can expect, at least as long as President uh, Biden is in the White House, is a, a full court press 
on anything related to gender ideologies. Is it secret? He told us he was going to do this on day one. Uh, everything they do indicates this. What you're referring to is a, is a ban on so-called conversion therapy. So again, a, a term of art. Um, what conversion therapy in this context refers to is therapy in which you talk to a child, deal with other kind of psychological comorbidities, because many kids with gender dysphoria have other problems that they're working through, and try to help the child just with talking to become comfortable in his or her body. That's now called conversion therapy, right? On the other hand, the kind of therapy in which you actually try to transform a child's body to conform with a mistaken gender identity that's called gender-affirming care. The, health, the Department of Health and Human Services actually has a page on this that they posted a couple of months ago that defines gender-affirming care in these ways. So the euphemisms go in both directions, right? If anything's going to be called conversion therapy, it should actually be gender-affirming care, but that's not, that's not the world in which we live. And so what I think we're going to see, Emily, is some states like Florida and Alabama uh, and Arkansas pushing back against this uh, and the federal government pushing it. So that's what I expect over the next two years is a heck of a lot of, of lawfare between the states and the federal government. Thanks, Jay. That's a great introduction to some of the challenges that parents are facing in healthcare and the need to ensure that parents have a choice of counselors that will align with um, their beliefs and help a child become comfortable with their body. Now I want to turn to the topic of choice in education. And Lindsay, you've spent your entire career promoting school choice. You've recently been appointed to the George Mason Board of Visitors. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, tell us about school choice. And what do parents really want and what do they need? Well, I think at the end of the day, parents want to be partners with their child's school. They don't want to be seen as uh, conspirators. Uh, they want to work hand in glove with their child's school to make sure that they are getting exactly what they need. And a key component of that is enabling families to actually select into learning environments that do align with their values. Something that was really important that both Matt and Joseph alluded to on the prior panel was that Right now, that is not remotely how our education system is structured. We have what I think is something much closer to this, um, I like to call it an iron triangle of compulsion, where you've got government assigned schooling. The government tells you where your child will attend school. It is government compelled. You must send your child to school. Every state requires that you send your child to school. And it's publicly funded. And so the compulsion, the uh, requirement for where you will attend school, uh, and the public financing all mean that we have to be much more involved in the types of content in particular that public schools are teaching today. And I think for a lot of uh, folks in the school choice movement, that is it's a bit new for us, to be honest, uh, to be working in this, in this space. But I think it is really the perfect marriage between what education choice and education freedom uh, can bring to the table to, to solve a lot of these issues. If you think through what we're here to talk about today, right, this promise to America's parents, what is the promise? The promise is what Roger articulated earlier. It's accountability, it's choice, and it's transparency. And those two pieces at the end, choice and transparency, uh, they are this two-step dance. Both need each other to work really well.
parents have a right to know what their child's school is teaching, to know the content, the curriculum, uh, to know if they are doing things that go against their values, that you know, if their child comes to school and says that they're a boy and the school is hiding that, uh, that their daughter is, is going through this from their parents, uh, that is something that, that should shock us. I think it does shock us. And yet we hear story after story where we're seeing this happen. So parents should know exactly what is being taught they should not have to go to school district headquarters to know about the curriculum that's being taught. They shouldn't have to FOIA information about the textbooks that are being used in their children's class. Um, we did a survey on this, a nationally representative survey a couple of years back that Emily was a part of, where we surveyed parents and school board members and asked a lot of these questions. 66% of parents, 66% and 80% of school board members 80% of school board members believe that schools should refrain from teaching young children in kindergarten and elementary school about sexual activity, including sexual orientation and gender identity. That's 80% of school board respondents. And so, you know, I think we often, um, particularly now in light of recent fights that we've seen over the past couple of years, uh, have this idea that school boards are um, very left-leaning. I think there's capture that has taken place there. I think we actually have a lot of room to work with school board members. That 80% number really does stand out. Um, but I will say there is a lot of capture that's taken place. Um, I mentioned earlier that there's what I see is this iron triangle of compulsion, these three components uh, that are really locking families in to a system that's not working for them and isn't transparent, isn't accountable to them as families. Well, I also think there are three uh, reasons for that that are really pushing families out um, of that school process. And one of those, teachers unions, obvious uh, to all of us who have followed this for years, but you know, the teachers unions, of course, if you look at their political contributions, 94% of their contributions go to Democrats and left-leaning causes, but it's also colleges of education. Colleges of education are the training grounds for future teachers. And we know that this is the primary way where aspiring teachers are first encountering things like critical theory. And beyond critical race theory, it's critical gender theory, it's queer theory. Critical theory is this broad umbrella that really encompasses a lot of different, um, different issues. And then uh, the third piece, which is something we keep invoking Jay Green's name, Jay Green on our team has been studying and that is this proliferation of chief diversity officers in district schools across the country. Uh, you probably know the term diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, DEI, in higher education. Well, this has been replicated to great effect in the K-12 space across the country. And so Jay looked at all the school districts across the country that had more than 15,000 students, and that means about 44% uh, of all kids in the country were included in his study. And he found that 39% of school districts now employ a chief diversity officer. Again, these are elementary and secondary schools. If you look at larger districts, 80% of large districts employ a chief diversity officer. And I think something that is really important that Jay points out in this paper is that even though the ideas that fall under critical theory broadly, critical gender theory, critical race theory, are not popular among families, what the purpose of these CDOs is, is to really uh, create this political orthodoxy within schools that faculty have to, and teachers and parents uh, really have to adhere to if they don't want to make trouble at school or be seen as troublemakers, but teachers in particular. 
so even though this isn't particularly popular, uh, these chief diversity officers, um, that, that is, I think, in effect, uh, what they're there to do is to shore up political orthodoxy around an issue area that is not actually that popular among either families, school board members, uh, but or parents or teachers. Thanks, Lindsay. That survey is really enlightening, and it shows how broad a consensus there actually is um, among parents and school board members that you know children should be taught um, objective information. They shouldn't be taught political ideology in the classroom. So talk a little bit about some of the successes that you've seen in the states when parents and lawmakers have stood up for school choice, and also what can Congress do? Well, I mean, I, I would say, and I'm, I'm biased, <laughs> I do ed policy, but I don't think there's another issue area where we have seen so much success in, quite frankly, a pretty short amount of time. Uh, if you follow education policy, you know that what, two weeks ago now, Governor Doug Ducey in Arizona signed into law what is now the nation's first truly universal education choice program. And not only that, it happens to be an education savings account, which we really see as uh, the way forward. It's the best way forward I think we have seen designed to date to provide education freedom to families. And so now every single child in Arizona, so there's no other eligibility requirement. That's not means tested. There aren't specific requirements about whether or not a child has to have special needs to qualify. You don't have to be switching out of a district in order to qualify any child in the state who wants it will now be able to access an education savings account. And this, this is amazing. I cannot say enough how amazing it is that we now have a completely universal program. And of course the left is going to push back and they're going to try to, to end it before it even gets going. Um, but theoretically moving forward, everybody will have access to this. And what that means is that if you want, as a parent, if for whatever reason your child's district school is not meeting their needs, you can leave and you can get a portion, roughly $7,000, uh, of what would have been spent on your child in their public school, so literally their per-pupil spending in your education savings account annually every year. And then you can use that money to pay for private school tuition if you want, or to hire a private tutor to buy textbooks, to buy curricula, uh, to hire uh, online coursework, uh, online teachers if you want. And so you can craft a completely customizable education experience for your child. And so it is, uh, we, we love a good school voucher, we love a good tax credit, but ESAs really are, I think, the way forward. And so again, to see that in Arizona now available to every single child, the level of accountability that that will provide to district schools in Arizona, because every family will now be able to immediately walk with their feet if they're not happy, will be incredibly high. So Arizona, I mean, it is, it's amazing what they've done. I think they are the gold standard at the moment on choice. I'm sure Florida is not going to let that stand very long. Uh, hopefully we'll see some friendly competition there in the near term. Florida's done a really good job on it as well, but we see state after state uh, now follow this model. And just to, to quickly answer your question on the, the federal side, there's a lot that can be done. Um, we've already gone over everything that um, on the uh, accountability side that Matt and, and Joseph covered earlier. But, you know, there's so much low-hanging fruit, I think. We're sitting here in Washington, D.C. right now. We have long been such fans of the um, district, uh, um, the Washington, D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. And that has honestly just been on, it's been a lifeline for families that uh, hasn't really received the type of support it has uh, been due from Congress. And, you know, it's, it's here in the nation's capital. It should be expanded. It should be open and available to every single family. 
There are opportunities to expand ESAs uh, at the federal level for more students as well. Uh, one really good opportunity that, that comes to mind would be for military connected families to be able to access those right away. So there's a whole menu of options that are out there that are available to advance choice at the federal level, uh, but certainly at the state level. Terrific. And for those of you who want to learn more about the political orthodoxy that is being implemented in the classroom, Lindsay has recently published a book called The Critical Classroom uh, that goes into the harm to kids of critical theory being implemented in education. So we have a few, I mean, a few minutes for questions from the audience for Jay and Lindsay. If you have a question, please raise your hand. This is an online question. Um, and. Uh, from Matthew Cookson, he says, uh, what, are, what are some things that people who perhaps don't have kids uh, can do to help advance school choice and increase accountability for educators? Yeah, I mean, look, even if you don't have kids, you're a taxpayer, right? <laughs> and you are funding public schools in your state. And even if you don't have children in those public schools, kids are graduating from these schools, they're entering communities. You know, we want them to be uh, well prepared and, and adjusted and um, able to inherit the blessings and liberties of a free society. So even if you don't have a particular child in a, in a district school, you should certainly be uh, voicing support for education choice for the good competitive pressure that that will place on district schools to improve and create that, that rising tide that lifts all boats. So choice is really important, but also be involved with your local school board. Um, that's something that, you know, I, I think has often been overlooked, at least historically, not counting the past two years, because this is, I mean, we have just seen so much momentum. But if you, if you do look historically, though, so prior to the past two years, school board turnout has been about 10%, roughly, if you follow the work of John Chubb, for instance, the political scientist who has uh, tracked school board involvement over the years, um, it is, it's low. And because it's so low, teachers unions have been able to capture school boards uh, and really drive a lot of the policy around them. And so being involved, uh, knowing when those school board elections are happening, knowing if you're in a state where they're on cycle or off cycle is really important. So I think there's a lot, even if you're not a parent, uh, that you can do, chief among them, showing up at those school board meetings. Thanks, Lindsay. We have another question here in the third row. It's kind of a question for both of you. You talk about ideological capture, especially when it comes to gender, you know, uh, treating gender uh, at-risk kids, um, looking at like American Pediatric Association and WPATH that kind of just in, um, you know, informs, you know, Democrats can kind of fall back on and, and say these are experts that are in favor of gender-affirming care. Are there any organizations that go against that? And if not, where can we look to or where can parents look to to get a better information and kind of back our Back yeah, it's a great question because this is the difficulty is that when people first hear about this, it sounds so strange and exotic that people think this must be just some really weird French thing. And then you tell them actually the American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, the Department of Health and Human Services, right, all advises in the same direction. And so it gives it uh, the, the patina of scientific credibility. But I mean, anyone that knows how these organizations work will realize these are mostly self-selected. They're not, American Academy of Pediatrics isn't running a democratic vote of all pediatricians. And so a lot of this is self-selected. Uh, unfortunately, we can't count on the media to sort of realize that. There are alternative organizations. In fact, there's an organization called APLUG, and it's the American Academy a physician, I, I, can't, I can't even remember what the acronym is. It's got obstetrician uh, and pediatrician in there, though, but it's called APLUG. And so it's, again, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need to have an alternative organization. But that's what's happened here. And it might seem 
okay, well, this is strange. So all the official organizations tell us to do one thing, and you're telling me these new organizations are saying the opposite. I don't know what the science is, and so I'm just going to go with the kind of majority view. You've got to realize it's not a majority view per se. What it is is a self-selected committee, either at WPATH or at uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics that that issues these position statements. There's ideologues and activists funding behind this. And then just a historical note, every generation in the 20th century has had to deal with some medical intellectual orthodoxy that all the official smart people believe. So the New York Times, uh, the medical boards, the doctors, even the Supreme Court of the United States. I'm describing eugenics in the 1920s, what took Nazism, which kind of gave eugenics bad branding, to kill it. But it was the intellectual orthodoxy uh, at the time. Lobotomies were an intellectual orthodoxy. All the smart people thought this is the proper standard of treatment. It's easy to recognize those, and I told the interns this yesterday. The, the trick for intellectual virtue is to recognize intellectual orthodoxies when you're in the middle of them and to be able to have enough intellectual discernment to push back. That's what we're dealing with with, with critical theory, and in particular gender ideology in, in the medical profession, a, a captured intellectual orthodoxy that we absolutely have to resist. I have no doubt in my mind that 25 years from now, people are going to look back, Gen, whatever comes after Gen Z, right, when they, they come of age, is that Gen AA or something? Do we start over? I don't know. Um, it should be AA now that I think about it, right? But they, they'll say, how, how did all the smart people think that this was a good idea to sterilize our teenagers just because they were maybe gender atypical? That will be the question. That's going to be easy for them. What's hard is to push back against it now, but that's absolutely what we have to do. This ideology, it's the eugenics of the early 21st century. And I think that's what makes Jay Green's paper so important in this moment, too, because it is one of the few that is rigorous and is pushing back and is questioning this established orthodoxy. Um, a few years ago, Dr. Ryan Anderson hosted a panel here on the treatment of children with gender dysphoria and a, a medical doctor um, Dr. Alan Josephson spoke on that panel and he challenged this um, orthodoxy and as a result he was actually terminated from his university, the University of uh, Louisville in Kentucky I believe. And so there, there are some people who are very courageously speaking up to challenge this gender orthodoxy but they are facing incredible censorship and punishment. Uh, another organization that has spoken here is American College of Pediatricians. They've put out some very good information on the actual evidence of treatment of children with gender dysphoria. In a couple of minutes, could you describe what's going on in the international conversation about gender dysphoria and what we are seeing in Europe? Absolutely. I mean, the, even though we're talking about this domestically, the United States wasn't the sort of first on uh, in terms of this treatment. As you might have guessed, the so-called Dutch protocol is the result of a very small study. I think it had 54 or 55 subjects in the Netherlands. Countries like Sweden uh, in the UK and Finland and Belgium uh, in the Netherlands, they're way ahead of us, or if I would say farther off the cliff than we are. Uh, the, the UK, for instance, has had an Equality Act on the books for years. As a result, those countries have, have, have more years actually dealing with this intervention, and several of the countries that were way ahead have, are actually paused it. So Sweden, 
Finland in the UK in particular have all paused and are now realizing, okay, the data we were told was good on this doesn't seem to conform to the data we actually have of kids that are, have undergone these procedures and these interventions. And so in some ways the US is trying to sort of play catch up. And then the countries that were starting this at the very, very beginning are actually starting to, starting to pause on it. The question, as in frankly, the question two years ago when we were dealing with COVID is, are we going to learn what's happening in an international context, or are we gonna just ignore that? But that's the sort of irony of this. So even though a lot of large international organizations, the World Health Organization, the UN, uh, are still pushing this stuff ideologically, the countries that have the most data on it are actually starting to have strong misgivings. Thanks, Jay. And I should add a footnote to Dr. Josephson's story. Alliance Defending Freedom now represents him in in a lawsuit against his university. Uh, Well, this has been tremendous. Thank you for all the important research that you've shared with us and for showing us really why parents need to have choice in both education and healthcare. Thanks, Emily. And now I'd like to invite our final panelists to join us on stage to talk about the third principle in the Promise to America's Parents, and that is transparency. And so we will be joined by um, our, my colleagues, uh, Jonathan Butcher, who is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, Jonathan has recently published a book called Splintered, Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth. And we are also joined by Virginia Gentles, and she is a senior policy analyst and director of the Education Freedom Center at the Independent Women's Forum and a longtime school choice advocate. So I'd like to start off with you, Jonathan, to tell us about what uh, is happening at the local, state, and federal level to promote the practice of critical race theory in the classroom, and how is that affecting students? Sure, thanks Emily, and that's a great question. So we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna start to separate fact from fiction. That's important in this whole debate here about what is the prevailing orthodoxy. I think either Jay or Lindsay used that term a moment ago about what is being taught in schools and then what's actually happening. So if you just Google the words, Republican war on history, and you will get headlines from medium like the Republican war on America's real history, uh, Syracuse University, the Republican war on American history, um, and then there was one down here from the Washington Post, same uh, the roots of the Republican war on democracy. Okay? So that's the prevailing orthodox. That's what we're talking about here. But as Lindsay brought up a moment ago, almost 80% of the school districts in the U.S. that have 100,000 students or more have a DEI coordinator, whose job it is to spread this ideological orthodoxy that you should not be judged by your behavior or your choices, but rather by the identity, by the group that you associate with, right? Okay, so uh, same thing here. We're gonna talk uh, uh, very quickly about when we move over to transgender, right? So if you Google war on transgender students, you get from Ed Week, transgender youth are under attack in the war on science. Uh, Let's see, Rolling Stone, GOP war on trans teens, the awful cost in Texas, Alabama. Uh, Vanity Fair, children as collateral damage, GOP's latest culture war targets transgender youth, and on and on. 
except, except if, so if you read those headlines, you'd think, well, I mean, it's just this war on these poor children, right? I mean, they're after these kids. But Philadelphia Public School District has had a policy on the book since 2016 saying that educators should not tell parents when a child comes to school and wants to assume a different gender. Topeka, Kansas has the same policy. The state of New Jersey has the same policy. States around the country have these policies saying that parents cannot be told when their child, their child goes to school and wants to assume a different uh, gender. All right, so I'm gonna get to, to Emily's question, but we're separating fact from fiction here about what the message is from the media and what's really going on. So how does this show up in states? I'm sorry, how does this show up first in schools? Have a look at the interest groups that have the most influence in our local school system. So the NEA, the nation's largest teachers union, and the AFT both have web pages on their sites promoting the 1619 Project, promoting transgender activism, as well as the Black Lives Matter Week of Action Act School, which has an entire repository of material for teachers to just go online and find and then use and create into a lesson plan, okay? So these are the interest groups that are feeding the ideology that we are talking about here today, both in terms of racial discrimination, which is really what's at the heart of critical race theory, as well as these radical ideas about assuming a different gender. Okay, so secondly, we're talking about states. So how does this show up in states? Have a look at the state departments of education and the material that they're creating. So in California, they have an ethnic studies program created by the State Department of Education with an entire chapter in the model curriculum on intersectionality, which is the component of critical race theory created by Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the founders of critical race theory. Okay. Oregon Public Schools, they were promoting something called equitable math, which is a math curriculum that says that math is uh, taught for the purpose of overcoming white supremacy and that capitalism must be um, uh, critically evaluated according to uh, critical race theory. You have Virginia, an entire book created by the Virginia Department of Education, Department of Education, called A Roadmap to Equity, and in the first couple of pages, they thank Ibram X. Kendi and Gloria Ladson Billings for being advisors on the project. Ibram X. Kendi, of course, is the modern day expositor of critical race theory. He wrote Stamped, he wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, which says that racism and capitalism are conjoined twins, by the way. And Gloria Ladson Billings, who's a critical race theorist and uh, professor emeritus at University of Wisconsin. Bonus, bonus here on this issue of uh, what's going on in states. There, it's not all bad news, right? And I think that there are superintendents of education in particular who deserve more attention, such as Cade Brumley down in Louisiana, who has not only pushed back on what's going on with the Biden administration and the recent call to change sex to gender identity in uh, federal law, but he actually produced social studies standards that recognizes America's complicated past, but also its promise to students today and the hope of America's future, okay? So uh, there are those in state departments of education who are pushing back against these various things that we're talking about. 
All right. On the federal side, so for the federal government, where do we see it coming through most? Uh, Jay mentioned this on the last panel. A lot of it is coming through executive orders because that's what he's got today. They don't have the patience to move through Congress anymore, so let's not vote. Let's just do it, right? So you've got an executive order that he passed shortly after he um, uh, was inaugurated. You had an executive order that came when they wanted to change the way that a relatively small grant that gave money to schools for history and civics studies, and they used in this proposed rule change about how schools would get money for these uh, history and civics instruction, they used as model material the 1619 Project and Ibram X. Kendi again, right? So it's coming through the federal government by way of executive order, by way of uh, executive fiat largely. Uh, bonus item on how else we can see it through uh, coming from the federal government is there are actually federal grants going to universities today to train teachers that until recently used the words critical race theory. So if you're not familiar with the Wayback Machine on the internet, I highly recommend the Wayback Machine, right? So you can look at the grant proposals that are up there now and the grant proposals that the Wayback Machine has from you know five, six years ago, and magically the words critical race theory disappear. And they're the only words that disappear. The rest of the entire grant description is, uh, is the same. And so colleges were receiving federal money to train teachers to teach critical race theory in the classroom. Okay, so with that, last thing I would add, Emily, is that um, this, this myth today that critical race theory is not taught in schools, right? It's this sort of um, buzzword, right, that the conservatives have created to scare people away. If that's the case, then why did the Detroit superintendent of public schools say that critical race theory is, and she used the word embedded, in school curriculum last December? And why is it part of the ethnic studies program in California? And why does the public, the, I'm sorry, the Portland public school system up in Oregon, why do they have videos online that say that they are the critical race theory working group? And it's a group of teachers that discuss this. And on and on. So separating fact from fiction is important. That's why it's worth going through each of these um, levels at which we see critical race theory, as well as radical gender ideas going into school. Thank you. That has laid a great foundation for us to understand the policy. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about some of the harms to children? Because a lot of people may hear the term critical race theory and think, oh, this is a good and helpful way to address racial inequality and, you know, we want to fight racism. Why is this the wrong way to go about it? Sure, because they use friendly words. They sound happy, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, right? I mean, who couldn't, you know, argue with that until you scratch away the surface? And it's sort of like when you get the box of cereal at the grocery store and you actually read what's in Lucky Charms and you realize you're putting that in your body when you eat it, right? So it's the same thing going on here with critical race theory. We are talking about an ideology that came out of the 1970s and 1980 and 1980s that said that both conservatives, but especially liberals, were not radical enough coming out of the Civil Rights Act. The argument that critical race theory is making is that Marxism, which is at the heart of critical thinking overall, was not fully embraced in the Civil Rights Act. Okay? So in 2002, when critical race theorist Angela Harris, who's a professor um, in California, she wrote that Marx's, uh, Marx's dazzling analysis of capitalism and 
you know, about the need for the coming revolution, it's still riveting to contemporary theorists, right? That's at the heart of what is in critical race theory. So how, how is it harming students and how is it actually showcasing, right, what it will actually do? Well, you have districts around the country using mandatory affinity groups. Wellesley Public Schools up in Massachusetts just settled a lawsuit with a group that uh, we're proud to partner with called Parents Defending Education, um, who challenged them and said a mandatory affinity group, you really, you can't do that anymore, right, after Brown v. Board of Education. And the notice here, the school district settled, right? They didn't take it all the way through the court system, and if I had to guess, it's because they knew they wouldn't win, right? Uh, the same thing goes for these diversity training programs that are part of professional development for teachers that ask teachers to affirm the idea that they possess some sort of privilege just based on their ethnicity and not based on their choices or decisions or where, where they grew up or the family that they came from, right? Um, so you have this overwhelming push now that it's not about the choices that you make, it is only about the group or the ethnicity that you come from which then takes away any hope or any, any understanding of the American dream, right? We're trying to tell children, you can achieve anything that you put your mind to, right? That America is built on the idea of equality under the law. You will be treated the same according to the law um, based on the color of your skin, right? It's going to be about the choices that you make in the life that you decide to live. And we are robbing of them of that when we say, as you know, critical race theorists have done, that um, uh, the uh, American system is systemically racist, which is another buzzword that if you, you can find that repeated over and over again in school board documents and in a curriculum created by the Southern Poverty Law Center, right? They're telling us that America is in fact irredeemably racist. And that's a, it's a devastating message to be giving to students today. Yeah, so as uh, Ian Rowe has written in The Critical Classroom, and you've just explained, critical race theory, when it's practiced in the classroom, it actually deprives students of agency and hope. And it, as you say in your book, divides children and pits them against one another. So you have also written eloquently on how the imposition of critical race theory in the classroom violates students' rights to free speech, and also it violates their right to equal protection to be treated equally regardless of their race. What about transparency? How would transparency policies help parents to even detect that critical race theory is being practiced in the classroom and combat it? Sure, and I think these are four essential components to a solid parent bill of rights. And you can do these separately, as they've been done separately in some states like Florida and Arizona, or you can do it all at once, as was proposed in Kansas uh, recently but was vetoed by the governor. So number one, right, as was mentioned on the first panel, parents are a child's primary caregiver, right? That should be in a state parent bill of rights, saying that they are the primary caregiver for their child, right? Second, no individual, so no teacher or student, should be compelled to affirm or believe any idea that violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They shouldn't be compelled on anything, but especially to believe some idea such as that American law is still systemically racist, right? So this prohibition on compelled speech is the second. The third would be um, the idea that a school should not be able to conduct any sort of health intervention, including counseling or a referral to counseling without a parent's express consent. Right? So parents must give express permission to a school to engage in any of these. And then finally, and this is what you're uh, leading to, is this question of transparency. What do we mean when we say transparency? 
Um, so the, um, uh, it's not just as um, a colleague of ours at the Goldwater Institute, Matt Weinberg, has explained, it's not just curricular transparency or textbook transparency, it's academic transparency. And what we are saying is that schools should be able to put online the reading lists, syllabi, worksheets, sources for all of the material that they use in the classroom for lesson plans. Right? And public schools should be able to, again, coming out of the pandemic when all school was online at one point, they should make accessible to parents and voters and policymakers these materials that they are showing to students. Right? And they should do it in such a way that parents can provide feedback or they can object before the material is actually given to students and they bring it home in their backpacks. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, well, staying with the, what's going on in the classroom and in schools, I'm going to turn to Jenny to talk about gender identity ideology and how that is showing up in education and what is happening to students. Well, we can talk um, about it in the context of what's being taught in classrooms, and it's, it's similar to what's been happening with critical race theory. There's a, a denial, or there was a denial, oh, it's, it's not being taught in the classroom. You scratch the surface, you dig a little deeper, and you ask some questions, and it's very clear that gender ideology is being taught in classrooms. Uh, concepts like a gender unicorn um, are, are being introduced. Um, books about breaking the binary, colorful books are, are being introduced. This kind of steady drumbeat of a message that children are born in the wrong body and that uh, it is in inclusive and kind to accept that subchildren have that realization and that they have come to a conclusion that they must uh, express a, a new gender identity and they must give themselves a new name and they must be referred to by new pronouns. Um, so those those concepts didn't come out of out of nowhere. Um, they've been taught um, at at schools. They are baked into lessons. Um, activist organizations like Gender Spectrum and Advocates for Youth, um, Planned Parenthood, they provide lesson plans that, that ensure that these are easily accessible lessons and materials that, that, that can be taught. So at no point should a parent ever accept the, oh, this isn't being taught in schools. It absolutely is. And transparency would, would make that clear. Um, increasingly, media reports and FOIA requests are making that clear. Well, what's the consequence of that? The children are being taught this in school. This is also a social contagion that's spreading through the the internet, um, and th these are policies that are put in place that codify it at the school district and at the state level. And um, and so what you have is an even more rapidly spreading social contagion of emotionally vulnerable children embracing new identities, ex expressing um, a preference to be well an insistent to be called by a new name and referred to by, by new pronouns. And so what are these policies that have been put in place? Um, again, parents should not accept the, the claim that, that this isn't happening, that there aren't these policies. Um, there are people in this room who have been sounding the alarm really since 2015 or so when it became clear that these policies were um, popping up, perhaps in, in more um, liberal and progressive areas. The activists started with the, the friendliest of the friendly school boards and then moved on to the friendliest of the friendly states. Um, but something that's missed if we just assume that it's contained to those initial school boards, our initial progressive states, is that this, they've been very successful. The activists have been successful, and we need to wake up and realize that these policies are in place 
let's just assume everywhere, rather than continuing to be surprised when we hear once again that a school district in Iowa, a school district in Maryland, two examples from just this past week, are transitioning students to new identities and mandating that all school staff keep that a secret from parents. We can't be surprised. We can be shocked. Lindsay referred to how, how this, this shocks us. We can continue to be shocked, and maybe we should be because we don't be, want to become complacent, but we shouldn't be surprised because these gender support plans, these policies that create these secret transitions, that build on these lessons that activists have put into, into classrooms and that, that many teachers seem to be enthusiastically embracing, they're everywhere now. They're not just in, in California. They're not just in Northern Virginia. And many of us who are following this issue closely were, were pleased when comedian Bill Maher actually drew attention to this social contagion and made the point that perhaps there's a, there's a bit of a manufacturing aspect of this, that, that progressive cities like LA are, are manufacturing trans kids and, and pushing this, uh, this agenda. Well, that, that misses two points. One, as I mentioned, this is rolled out through the, through the internet, through these policies. Um, uh, and, and, and two, that with these policies in place, it, they're not just in place in LA. They're not just in place in, in California. Um, they're everywhere. So what is a gender support plan? That's a term that everyone needs to get really familiar with until they change the wording, which they have done with critical race theory. But for now, um, pay attention to gender support plans. These are um, put, uh, these are plans that the school district swiftly moves into action if um, a vulnerable child comes in and says, I, I feel that I'm in the wrong body. I feel that I, I need a new name. The, the child sits down with the school staff, no parent in place, um, sits down with the school staff and, and hammers out uh, a plan for the arrangements that the child's going to have as far as bathrooms and locker rooms and overnight accommodations, but also um, names and, and identity. And the child is asked by the school if, this, if they can, if the school, if, if the child feels comfortable with the parents knowing the, the child's identity. And when the child says no, which probably a lot of uh, emotional 12-year-olds would say no, then the school rushes into action to protect the child from the harm that they might receive from that, from that parent. And they, they lock down that gender support plan as a secret. And so that kind of sounds probably fun to some of these some of these 12 year olds like who doesn't want to be in on a secret um, that's between the school and the and the child that everybody's in on at the at the school everybody needs to to um, do what the child wishes and then keep it from the from the parents so it adds an element of drama and excitement um, to what's going on with this social contagion um, and it's uh, perhaps fun initially. But it doesn't stay fun because often when these children are asking for this new identity, it's because they're deeply struggling with issues. Uh, uh, it's, it's fairly well um, proven and, and known that um, the students who um, want to have different gender identities are often dealing with comorbidities um, such as ADHD, they're um, uh, often on the autism spectrum disorder. 
data from the UK shows that um, I think it's at least 40% of the, the students referred to a gender clinic in the, in the UK, the primary one, um, that those students had um, autism spectrum disorder. And uh, they're also dealing with emotion, emotional challenges like depression and anxiety. So if they're having these challenges to the point that they're having a distress where maybe they truly do feel like they're in their wrong body, maybe they are deeply uncomfortable in their own body, um, the parents needs to know that that child's really emotionally struggling. That parent should not be cut out of what's happening in that child's life emotionally, and that certainly should not be kept out of what's happening with the child's school records. That there's no precedent for that happening. In fact, we've been talking about it all morning. There are laws in place to ensure that there, are, uh, that this doesn't happen, um, and there. There are processes in place where if something's going on with a child, if the child has special needs, the parent of course comes in and there is a group meeting um, and, a, and the possibility and the exploration of developing an individual education plan for that child with the parent. Why is there suddenly with this gender thing something completely different happening? Um, so this is happening because of uh, because activists have gotten these policies, again, starting with the liberal districts, but now we know they're spreading throughout the districts. And then it's um, also happening because they then moved on to the, the state level. So Virginia, for example, has a uh, model trans, state model transgender policy. This is a 27-page document that was drafted largely by activists. Um, when comments were provided from the public um, to these transgender model guidance, I believe they received the state received 9,000 comments. The state um, or the activists that were working on, on developing this ignored the comments, actually moved the document and changed it even further towards uh, embracing gender identity can, looking at, at parents who don't, um, who don't accept the child's gender um, identity as potential abusers, the, the, the state model policy in, encourages the school staff to consider referring the family to um, child protective services if they, if they have concerns, um, and uh, recommends um, ending homecoming courts divided by sex, recommends ending choirs divided by, by sex, completely shifts the, the world of schools and, and the world of, of children away from biological reality. Um, so even if a school district in Virginia did not want to have these uh, gender support plans and these model transgender policies in place, they have to. Uh, the state passed a law, said that you have to, in, have to use these um, Virginia Department of Education policies or go beyond them. And so as of last school year, every single school district in Virginia by law has to, has to be following these policies. Um, the federal government takes it one step further. As we've been hearing all morning, the Biden administration is ensuring that the, the weight of federal, the federal government is, is behind these. So we can see some activist teachers that might pop up on libs of TikTok and we might laugh at, oh, aren't they ridiculous? Those activist teachers and the things that they're teaching and the things that they're doing and the secrets that they're keeping are um, not just permitted, but required at district, state, and, and the federal level. Wow, thank you, Jenny. Um, do you think that there are implications for parental rights because of the way that the Biden administration is reinterpreting sex to include gender identity in Title IX? Um, and is the Department of Education clarifying that parents must be included in any of these gender support plans? 
Well, quite the opposite. And I think sometimes in Washington, we, we throw around terms like PPRA and FERPA and Title IX, and, and we don't take a moment to kind of explain what it is. So Title IX, which has been around for 50 years, we've just celebrated the 50th anniversary, says no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So no exclusion on the basis of sex. Um, that law, well, Title IX, been around for 50 years, under the Biden administration um, will be changed. That definition will be changed by proposed regulations that have, that have come out recently. And the, the definition of sex will no longer be tied to uh, biological reality, the biological distinctions between male and female. Um, the additional categories have been added, including gender identity. And so that means that sex-based discrimination actually will have nothing to do with sex um, and will have to do with how people identify. Um, and so the, the Biden administration has kind of tossed the actual definition of, of sex-based discrimination up in the air, created this new, um, this new way of, of looking at reality and uh, created enforcement mechanisms proposed in the regulation that will essentially require schools to implement these gender support plans and to keep secrets from parents. Um, and the complaint process and the, um, and the enforcement process has been made easier. So a Title IX complaint could be made um, by a student and this is at all levels of government, um, or all levels of education. K-12 schools receive federal funding. Um, and this isn't just college sports, as people sometimes think about with Title IX. Um, so if a, you know, an elementary, middle school student feels uh, that they have, that a teacher has um, not hidden their identity sufficiently from, the, from their parents, that could be a Title IX violation, and the Title IX coordinator will have to take action, or, they risk uh, the school, the district risks losing federal funding. And so that that federal funding out there is uh, it's it's not just that the schools want to comply by this um, this regulation that, that which has the the force of federal law. They don't want to lose their funding. Um, so the, these Title IX coordinators are going to be extremely powerful people who will keep, be keeping an eye on school district staff, on teachers, to ensure that gender identity is, is um, uh, enforced at all levels of education. And the, the regulations take it one step further and, um, and, and they say that um, if sex-based harassment that occurs outside of school um, could be considered a Title IX violation if the behavior contributes to a hostile environment at school. So uh, th that sounds a little confusing, but it, it very well likely could be interpreted that um, parents not affirming a child at home could be a Title IX violation. So we're going really far down this route of, of um, ensuring that we draw, that the government is driving a wedge between parents who want to affirm their child's biological sex, parents who might just be gently questioning, what's going on with my child? There's something emotionally happening here. I want to um, understand and I want to ask questions. Parents will not be able to affirm biological sex. They will not be able to ask those gentle questions um, <clears throat> without the risk of a, a Title IX 
um, investigation and um, and that's frightening. People should be scared that this is this is happening. They should not just think Title IX regulations that has something to do with college women's sports. No, this has, has to do with the um, protection of families and the protection of vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable children who are caught up in this contagion. Um, and so comments should um, can be submitted to the federal government through September 12th, and everyone should submit a comment about their concerns about um, Title IX. Um, a number of the organizations that have been speaking here today have set up comment portals. Um, the Independent Women's Voice has a, has a comment portal. We encourage everyone to submit comments and express concern. Well, thank you so much for showing us how schools are keeping secrets from parents and driving wedges between parents and children. And for both of you, showing us why both Congress and the states need to protect parents' rights to transparency. So in our closing minutes, we have time for one more question for Jonathan or Ginny. If you have a question, please raise your hand. We have one in the second row. Hi, Nancy Linton. Um, what about educators um, who do not want to collude with that plan? You know, we had Tanner Cross, of course, in Loudoun County who uh, was removed from his job and then I believe was found by a judge to have been unfairly removed. But what about educators who, for their religious beliefs or any reason, does not want to collude with that plan? Well, I can actually answer that question since Tanner Cross is a client of Alliance Defending Freedom. And as you point out, there are many teachers who do want to speak the truth about biological sex, that we are created male and female, and they don't want to keep secrets for parents. So absolutely, teachers do not lose their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech and freedom of conscience and religion in the classroom. And so um, Tanner was vindicated in his case. He did win against the Loudoun County School Board that had suspended him from school for wanting to speak the truth about biological sex to his students. In addition to that victory, there was recently another victory um, that for an Alliance Defending Freedom client in Kansas in the federal district court where that teacher's rights to uh, inform parents, to tell the truth to parents was also vindicated. And the, and the court actually, um, you know, held the school board accountable saying, you know, if you're trying to keep this information about a child's gender distress secret from parents because you don't like what you think the parents are going to do, which is affirm the body, then that motive in and of itself is problematic because it shows that you are trying to deceive parents. So there are good precedents um, being established in the courts on behalf of teachers. And there are many teachers across the country like Tanner and like this teacher in Kansas who want to tell the truth both to students and to parents. Would you like to add anything? Well, thank you very much, Jonathan and Ginny, for an, a wonderful explanation of some of the dangers that are taking place uh, in, in the classroom, in the, in the school, uh, both to children and the undermining of parental rights. And unfortunately, we do see that this statist view of children is growing, and it is treating children as if they are mere creatures of the state, which the Supreme Court has said they are not. And parental rights are fundamental rights. They are pre-political natural rights. They are protected by the US Constitution. And they are protected under many state laws 
But as we see today, parental rights are being usurped both in education and healthcare, and children are experiencing harms to their minds, to their bodies, to their family relationships, which is why Foundation, Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Family Policy Alliance came together around the 10 principles in the Promise to America's Parents. And again, those principles are government accountability, choice, and transparency, and that spells the acronym ACT. And there is a role for all of us to play, whether you are a parent, or you are a taxpayer, or you work with a public policy organization, or you are a, a local school board member, or if you are at the state level, or here in Washington, D.C., working in Congress. All of us can do something to stand up and protect parental rights and to ensure that parents who love and know their children best are the ones to direct the upbringing, the education, and the care of their children. So I want to thank all of you who are here in person and all of you who are online joining us for tuning in to our event. And I encourage you to visit um, the Heritage Foundation for some of the publications that we discussed today. And please join me in thanking all of our panelists.